You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. That plot destruction, sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning, as the war machine keeps turning. Death and hatred to mankind, poisoning. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Well, 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 here we are, the Anarchist World This Week on your local community radio station, courtesy of those wonderful people at the Community Radio Network. Heard across Australia, the program is also podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au, streaming live across the world on the World Wide Web. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. My name is Joseph Tosco. I'm hosting... Today's program, if you wonder what anarchy is all about, no, it's not what's happening in the world today. That's chaos, okay? Anarchy is about organisation. Anarchos without rulers, not without rules. It's a society where wealth and power is held in common. So, why that? Well, very simple. It's inequalities in power and wealth which result in many of the atrocities and problems we see in the world today. So the anarchist struggles, the struggle to devolve or share power, possibly through direct democratic mechanisms, and the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. I couldn't think of two more conservative concepts. They're just so funny that us anarchists are supposed to be the bomb throwers and the chaoticists when the chaoticists are actually exercising power as we speak. So I've been thinking this about this a while. Who are the greatest friends of the rich and powerful? Hmm? No, it's not me or you. It's a disengaged public. You like that word? A disengaged public. We're always told the democracy is rule of the people, by the people, for the people. But there is one little sentence which hasn't been added to that, and that is democracy is rule of the people, by the people, for the people, by an engaged public. And it's the same as it's the same for radical change or any type of reformist change or even re- revolutionary change. You need an engaged public. And the great thing about the 21st century is that we have so many diversionary activities at our fingertips that most people are not engaged. 
with what's happening around them. And the great thing about living in a society where the individual, an individual need, is at the centre of uh, decision-making processes, the great thing about living in such a society is that it's always your fault. Maybe it's your shortcomings as a human being. Maybe a little bit of therapy will get you thinking in the right frame of mind. Maybe a good investment portfolio will give you that, you know, that zing you need in your life. So you've got a bit of disposable income to enjoy yourself. But that's the fact is, we are a disengaged society. We're not engaged in the decision-making processes. Somehow we think democracy or representative democracy is all about casting a ballot every three to four years and then getting a political classes to actually make decisions for us. If it's Palestine, if it's uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander First Nations issues, if it's unemployment, the housing crisis, you name it, disengaged. Unless it personally affects you, that you're not interested. No interest whatsoever. And that's what the those who exercise power and hold wealth encourage. It's a disengaged public which allows those who exercise power to continue to exercise those power that power and those who accumulate wealth at the expense of everybody else to continue to accumulate that wealth. Because while, as a people, we are disengaged from that process, we will allow vested interests to win over and over again. And the digital revolution in the 21st century has ensured that disengagement is the name of the game. And it's that, it's that disengagement which allows authoritarian leaders to flourish triumph as we've seen around the world it's that disengagement which allows a rich country like australia to accept that one million children have to live in poverty it's that disengagement it's all about us it's about me 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 it's not about anybody else it's all about me we're so self-obsessed and self-absorbed as individuals, that we forget we're part of a wider community and a society. Now, obviously, that's a more sexual society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. Understand this. And that's why diversion is such an important part of living in a postmodern capitalist society, a society based on private investment for private profit. We need to be diverted as a people from the real issues. Who exercises power? Who accumulates wealth? How they accumulate wealth? And the beauty about the 21st century is we can lose ourselves in so many rabbit holes. We can create our own reality, which has nothing to do with reality, our virtual reality. And if you're not that way inclined, there's always concerts, festivals, 
you name it. Special interests, maybe you collect coins, although I understand it's running out of fashion, or maybe you collect Lamborghinis, who knows. But it's that disengagement from the decision-making process, and that's what anarchism is about. That's what people forget. It's about people being involved in the decision-making process, but more importantly, people wanting to be involved, not outsourcing that responsibility to a group of people in Parliament who don't actually have the power to make major decisions to ensure that major reform occurs in this society. Every time somebody puts their head above the parapet, as far as reform is concerned, it's shot off. It's shot. Yeah, they're shot. Simple. Shot. Because there is no debate about reform. There's a debate about how much am I going to get? Will I get an extra $20 in my pay? In my pay? Will I get an extra $10 in my Social Security benefit? What am I going to do with it? What wonderful things can I buy? You know, we are a consumer-orientated society. Can I, you know, rot my brain with Netflix, all right, or, or buying a streaming services to Fox, and the list goes, or can I while my life away playing games, whether it's real games or virtual games, the same thing. Now, I'm not saying... I'm no Puritan. I'm not saying that people shouldn't go to concerts or play games or go to a circus or enjoy themselves or go to the beach. But what I am saying is if we as a population are not engaged in the debate and political process regarding the major issues which affect us, we will continue to be card-carrying members of the somebody should do something about that tribe or the gunner tribe. And that's the issue. That's the central issue. It's not the fact that power is centralised in the hands of fewer and fewer people. It's not the fact that over the last 40 years during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation revolution, we've seen wealth stick to the fingers of fewer and fewer people in society. And we've seen the bulk of society, you know, having to deal with uh, a financial burden just to keep a roof over their heads. That's not the issue. The issue is we, as a people, accept the status quo. And if we're not engaged, you know, in issue-orientated politics or if we're not engaged, you know, in personality clashes or engaged in some type of, you know, diversionary thing, we find ourselves sitting on the sidelines, spectators at our own funeral. And that's the key. We continue to be spectators to the day we die. And that's the way those who exercise power and concentrate wealth want us to behave like Pavlov's dogs, barking on order, thinking the problem is us. We need a bit of therapy. We need some psychological counselling. 
We need to change our attitude so that we can all become rich and powerful. It's extraordinary. A disengaged public is the is the rich and powerful's best ally. Best ally. I mean, we like to, you know, talk about the fact there's inequality and we need to do this and we need to do that. But ultimately, if we continue to be disengaged from the political and social processes and cultural processes which are occurring as I speak, we will continue, as I said before, to be spectators as far as our life is concerned. And that's what life seems to be about these days. It's about watching, not living it. Listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, I just noticed that in the last 24 hours, the United States has vetoed another United Nations security resolution regarding calling a ceasefire in Gaza. All those of you who like walking, I'd just like to remind you that little walk we take every day on the Anarchist World, every week on the Anarchist World this week, where we pass all the dead in the Gaza conflict has now reached 29.18 kilometres. Every metre, there's a man, woman and child dead since the 7th of October. That's right. So, now obviously... The big news currently is Ukraine, what's happening in Russia, and obviously that is news because obviously it highlights the authoritarian, dictatorial nature of Mr. Putin, who thinks he's another, you know, thinks he's what I don't know, another Rasputin. But the fact is that what's happening in Gaza is unparalleled as far as the 21st century is concerned. And I think a lot of people kind of blur the edges. And what I'd like to do today is actually bring two struggles which have been going on for decades, two independent struggles together into the same sentence. And I'll look at the similarities between the West Papuan struggle for independence and the Palestinian struggle for independence. Because both struggles have many similarities. The difference between Palestine, which is over 10,000 kilometres away, and West Papua, which is 70 kilometres away from the Australian coastline, are few and far between. Over a half a million West Papuans have died directly and indirectly in the last 60-year war since the United Nations ceded West Papua from the Dutch to the Indonesian authorities. And let's not forget that the West Papuan population is less than... Uh, the indigenous population is just over 1.2 million. That's 500,000. Extraordinary numbers. Now, obviously, in the Palestinian struggle over the last 70 years or so, we've seen the same number of people who've been killed in that struggle. Both independence movements struggling against enormous odds 
the Palestinians are not just struggling against the Israelis. They are struggling against the United States and its allies. And that includes Australia. West Papua is the forgotten child. The Australian governments, successive Australian governments of different, of different political hues, have been supporting the Indonesian authorities to the hilt in their armed struggle against West Papuan independence guerrillas. We provide them with armaments. We provide them with training, counterinsurgency training. We provide them with support. And we even refuse to use the word West Papua on ABC News reports, the few times it appears. It's the same for the Palestinian struggle. We don't see the same urgency in either independent struggle, and both groups are fighting against the colonial authorities. Now, obviously, the Gaza situation has become intolerable. But the fact is, when you get the king-in-waiting, King William all right, of Great Britain, claiming, suggesting, demanding that a ceasefire occurs in Gaza, you begin to understand how heinous the situation is. Now in West Papua, what we're seeing is a true colonial struggle where the West Papuans are educated in the Indonesian language. They've become, to a significant degree, strangers in their own land. So, as the convener of the West Papuan office in Collins Street in Melbourne, I encourage those of you who are able to support the West Papuan office to assist us financially to keep that office open because that office acts as a coordinating facility for the West Papuan independence struggle around the world. It's not just about Australia. And the fact is the West Papuans are in for a very difficult time. We have just seen the Indonesian people elect Mr Subianto, a war criminal, who was banned, that's right, banned from coming to Australia and the United States because of his human rights record as their president. And obviously the Australian government will be welcoming his election with open arms. And obviously, because West Papua is such a rich province as far as natural resources are concerned, that we will see an escalation in the exploitation of those natural resources. Currently... There is one Indonesian soldier for every West Papuan adult male in the province. There are over 250,000 Indonesian troops in West Papua. 
There are roadblocks all over West Papua and the guerrillas continue to function in the mountains. Even after 60 years of this independent struggle, they continue to survive and function and offer armed resistance to the Indonesian occupation. When I speak about an engaged public, how many Australians know about West Papua? How many are engaged? 70 kilometres off our shore. As I said before, they're going to be in for a very, very difficult time. As President Subianto consolidates his power in that country. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Look, I keep saying an engaged public. Obviously, anybody listening to the Anarchist World this week is engaged in some way, whether you offer financial support to particular struggles, whether you're actually able to go out in the streets, whether you talk to your neighbours. Obviously, you're engaged. But the dilemma is 99% of the population is not engaged. Because that old adage that you don't speak about religion and politics still seems to be, you know, number one around this country. And the dilemma is that when you start speaking about politics, you may find that you're very quickly ostracised from your neighbours who love to continue to live in that make-believe world we all live in. I keep saying this every week and I'll say it again. We have 26 million people in this country now. We live on a continent. Irrespective of what you think about the climate emergency, the fact is, compared to most other people in the world, we live on an extraordinarily resource-rich continent. Extraordinary. Only 26 million people. And we have a housing crisis. We have an education crisis. We have a health crisis. We have a million children living in poverty. I think it's 1.2 million as I speak. We have people living rough on the streets and in the parks. We have 32,000 registered charities as well as unregistered ones which are providing for the basic human needs of people in this country. I mean, what's wrong with us? What is wrong with us that we've made such a hash of the situation? Think about it. It's because we're not engaged with what's happening around us. It's that engagement. Whether it's just talk, whether it's action, whether it's thinking. It's that engagement which acts as the engine room of change. There are no ideas out there in the community. There is no discussion. There is no debate. Now, obviously, we are functioning in a society where the means of the communication, whether it's in the virtual world or the uh, real world, is not dominated by the type of things we are interested in, by the type of discussion. It's dominated by the private investment of private 
profit crowd. Every aspect, every moment of discussion is about the bills, how to pay the bills, how to get an income, is my pension good enough, why aren't I being paid this, why am I struggling, you know. I was uh, I was at a cafe um, somewhere in southeast no southwest and on the wall right on the wall I think it was a very good thing on the wall there are pictures of this particular work this charity is doing it's providing lunches for students in public schools for ten schools why should a private charity have to provide lunch? to Australian kids going to a public school. What's wrong with us that we can't even provide lunch? It's extraordinary. It is an extraordinary situation we find ourselves in. Let's move on. The digital revolution. Liberator or enslaver? You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia, courtesy of the Community Radio Satellite. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. My, my name is Joseph Toscano. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's funny. You know, the last time humanity was faced with the type of uh, problems we're faced with today that's Western society, would have been possibly during the Industrial Revolution, the late 18th century and the early 19th century. There's a famous phrase, which I'll try not to mangle, and it says, a revolution in the way people earn their living is a harbinger of political change. Now, the Industrial Revolution was basically the end of the feudal system and it created huge issues, which I won't discuss at the minute. But we are now part of a digital revolution and that digital revolution is having profound impacts on the way we live and the way we interact with everybody else. And we're told consistently this is a revolution which will benefit all of us. Well, the issue isn't the technology. The issue is who controls that technology. That is the issue. When the digital revolution began in the late 1980s, it was seen as the great liberator. It would allow us to free ourselves from the hegemony, big word, isn't it, of the, uh, the legacy media. And somehow we would all be liberated. The fact is the digital revolution is having huge impacts on the way we earn our living and the way we live and obviously some sections of the population have embraced it. But a significant section of the population are beginning to find that 
this is not liberating technology, it's enslaving technology. When our personal information becomes the material that they use, they collect in order to exploit us, we begin to understand the limitations. When we see individuals owning search engines that are pivotal to the digital revolution and using those search engines not to make life easier or liberate us from the everyday everyday angst that we all face, but enslave us in invisible chains which incorporate us into their money-making you know, pursuits. I mean, it's not the revolution. The digital revolution is the problem. The problem is who owns the machinery? How is it used? Is it used to liberate us? Or is it used to enslave us? Is it used to steal from us? and maximise other people's profits, or is it used for humanity as a whole? And obviously, we have now seen a complete turnaround in the philosophy and the ideology behind the digital revolution. And as I keep saying, as the digital revolution is rolled out, and human beings are not necessary in the numbers we have, in order to maximise profits for that small sector society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, we should be changing the type of demands that we should be pushing for, aiming for. Things like a universal basic income to ensure that everybody who is not part of the wage system, can live a reasonable life. And there's no reason you can't do that in Australia. We should be thinking about a huge expansion in the public housing sector because there is no private solution to the current housing crisis. None whatsoever. And every kid on the block in the housing debate is about maximising the involvement of the private sector in an effort to improve the housing crisis. Think about it. The digital revolution can be liberating. It can liberate us, liberate us from the monotony of everyday work and everyday existence. But the dilemma is, is it owned by commonly owned? Is it publicly owned? Or is it privately owned? And when I talk about publicly owned, I'm not talking about owned by the state, as we see in dictatorial authoritarian regimes where the, the digital revolution has been harnessed by the state in order to oppress its own people.
think about it. Well, next time, you know, somebody asks you to do something to maximise their profits by using digital technology, you say, well, do I get a discount for doing my own work? Or do you just increase your profits as we see currently in the uh, financial sector? Now, I know I'm jumping around today, but, you know, sometimes you need to jump around, get people's neurons working. Now, I've got a question for you. What does the London Blitz in World War Two and Gaza in 2024 have in common? Hmm? Have in common. Any idea? No. Well, something I've been thinking about lately. There's a lot of... There's a lot in common. More people have died in Gaza since the 7th of October than died in the London Blitz. I think mortality rate was around 24,000 when the Nazis bombed London, hoping that the English would surrender. In Gaza in 2024, a little community of over 2 million people, the size of, I think it's about half of Melbourne, maybe a third of Melbourne, we've now had almost 30,000 people die, most women and children. That brings me to the second thing. What did the English do when they realised that the London Blitz had commenced? 920,000 children were sent out of London to be billeted in homes across England. Now, unfortunately, in Gaza, the Palestinians living in Gaza don't have that luxury of billeting their children outside of Gaza temporarily during the current carnage. They don't have that luxury. But they do have the luxury of actually writing the name in, you know, a marker pen of their children on their legs and their arms just in case they die, they're bombed to bits. So at least somebody knows who they are. They do have that luxury, don't they? They've got marking pens. So when you look at what's happening in Gaza, you begin to understand the the atrocities which are occurring. Now, I know that on the 7th of October... Hamas fighters broke out of Gaza, the world's biggest prison, into southern Israel. They kidnapped over 250 people and killed over 1,200 people. I know that. Everybody knows that. But the fact is most people don't actually understand or know the history of the Palestinians. Now I like to say it over and over and over and over again. Who is paying the price in 2024 
for the Nazi Holocaust, which saw six million Jews exterminated by the Nazis as part of their final solution. Who is paying the cost? Is it the people of Germany, where that particular ideology took root and people support it? If you look at the pictures of the day, that particular ideological position? No. Who's paying the price for the Holocaust? The Palestinians are paying the price. They're not only paying the price financially, not only paying the price in terms of losing their lands to a new colonial authority, but they're paying the price in blood. while the world averts its gaze. And we have countries like the United States who quite rightly complain about the unexplained deaths of political activists in Russia and what's happening in Ukraine, vetoing an Algerian resolution in the Security Council for the Security Council to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Let's move on. Now, just in case you thought that we were protected by our alliance with the United States of America, just a few reality checks. And I think the current government is beginning to understand, considering who will be president for the next four years, is beginning to understand that the current total all the way of the USA alliance we have is actually a problem, a major problem for this country. It's not just about, you know, names on a piece of paper and a few signatures, about an alliance, we will protect you if you look after us. It's about incorporating the Australian military forces, that's the armed forces, the naval forces, the air force, directly into the United States military-industrial complex to such a degree that the type of armaments we have in this country to defend this country are totally dependent on US supply. It's a little bit like buying seeds which don't produce, which produce plants which don't produce seeds. So you've got to keep going back to the seed manufacturer to keep growing that crop. It's the same, it's the same principle. Wonderful principle. Now, when we look at the United States record in the world, in the post World War II world, Vietnam. They deserted the South Vietnamese when push came to shove. Afghanistan, they deserted the Afghan people when push came to shove. Iraq, over a million dead in that invasion. They're just barely hanging on with a few thousand soldiers which are not wanted in Iraq. The fact is that an alliance with the US of A is no guarantee of protection. 
none whatsoever. Because as we're seeing with Ukraine as I speak, as the Ukraine military forces lose ground to the Russian military forces, who is, who is the main entity that is refusing to provide the resources for Ukraine. It's the United States Congress. It's the United States of America. It's the old story. You go out there, fight for us, get killed in your tens of thousands, and when push comes to shove, we'll desert you. We saw it in with the we saw it in the autonomous regions of uh, Syria where those fighters were the ones who basically defeated Islamic State. And when push came to shove, the United States just moved on. Moved on. Because the United States is only interested in one thing. And one thing about Mr Trump is he makes it very clear. The United States is interested, government is interested in the United States. End of story. Not necessarily the United States people, but is interested in maximising profits for the United States you know, cla- uh, property classes. That's what it's about. And if it means deserting important allies, well, that's what happens. That's what happens. Now, with the election of Mr Subianto, a war criminal, as the president of Indonesia... And let's, let's not forget he's got a very long history. He was a def- I think he was a defence minister, and I could be corrected here, in the Suharto regime. The fact is that in 1966, the United States concerned that Indonesia may become a communist uh, state, engineered a coup. We saw General Suharto appointed as dictator, which resulted in the death of between 1.5 to 2 million people in a three-month period. An extraordinary slaughter just on our doorsteps. And what what have we been doing since? We have been supporting successive Indonesian governments. So what happens if Mr... Subianto decides that Australia is the enemy. Do you think the United States is going to protect us? Come on, grow up. Think about it. It's an independent foreign policy is the only thing that will protect us. It's not these so-called alliances with so-called superpowers You know, it's fascinating when you look at the media in this country how things change. A few weeks ago, Taiwan was the big, big topic. It's fallen off the pages. Today, it's the Russian murder of political prisoners. A few days' time, it'll fall off the paper. And that's the thing. News moves on. Everything revolves around the US and its interests. And that's the dilemma. 
Because if you think, as a people, if we really think that as a people, looking at the track record of the United States, that somehow they're going to come to our defence if need be, it's not going to happen. They want us to fight their wars. That's right. They need us to fight their wars. Whether it's the covert wars which are being fought as I speak from Pine Gap and other military, US military facilities in, in Australia or actually send troops and equipment to other parts of the world as we continually do, whether it was Afghanistan or Vietnam or Iraq. We're always there, aren't we? So if you really think the United States is going to save our bacon, think again, because, you know, we do live in a different part of the world. You can't attach a few tugboats to the Australian continent and pull it across to the west coast of the USA. That's not reality. Let's move on. Let's move on. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. And as I keep saying, is the housing crisis no private solution? How can we have a housing crisis? Why do we have a housing crisis? Because there is no competition in the housing sector. The destruction of the public housing sector in the last 20 to 30 years, especially in the state of Victoria, has resulted in the fact that the private sector is totally in control of housing. Totally in control. And while there is no competition in the private housing sector, there will be, there will continue to be a housing crisis. The best way to solve, or the only way, not best way, the only way to solve the current housing crisis, as we see in many European countries, is for a dramatic expansion. That's right, a dramatic expansion of the public housing sector. Even if you use the stamp duty revenue which comes from the sale of housing in Victoria, which I'm familiar with, to build and spot purchase public housing, you will find you could house 100,000 Victorians every year in public housing. And as the number of people in public housing increases, the pressure on the rental market decreases, rent falls, as rent falls, investors, irrespective of negative gearing, move their money out of the sector, housing prices fall, younger people get into the housing market, the private housing market. It is a simple, 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 simple solution which nobody talks about because in a, in a community where private investment for private profit is the central pillar of our society... It is heresy, heresy to talk about the expansion of the public housing sector, not in terms of giving it to community social housing groups which are privately owned. Because, see, you see, public housing does a lot of things. It provides secure accommodation, and that's the key, security. 
It doesn't matter what type of lease you have, and over 40% of Australians now rely on you know rental agreements, you can be kicked out at any time for a variety of reasons. You've got no security, and what's more important, your kids don't have any security. They might be uprooted from the schools and their friends and they have to go to another school and lose all their friends. Public housing provides security. At 25% of your income, it provides financial security. So if you're on a social security benefit, you only need to pay 25% of that social security benefit. If you're on a low wage, you pay 25%. Because public housing shouldn't just be for the destitute and the desperate. Public housing should be an option, a real option, for anyone who can't afford to enter the private housing market. And that's why it was originally created. So I recommend very strongly that you hold public housing vigils across the country. Very simple to organise. Find one of your local politicians, stand outside their office, get a banner. It's easy. Because that's the debate we should be having. Not about giving money to the private sector to build more private homes for the community and social housing sector, but it's about building and managing public housing for the people of this country. Now, I just want to touch on the death of the public intellectual. I mean, I'm sick and tired of watching Auntie. Poor old Auntie's on life support. I think it's about time I uh, put her on the euthanasia list. But... um, Where's the, where's the public intellectual? Where's that academic who could speak free of coercion? They don't exist. Universities have become nothing more than growth pens for the private sector. Loss of tenure, loss entering contracts where you can't speak out, be involved in research which is uh, privatised, where you can't even publish if you don't get the right results, has destroyed the public intellectual, destroyed the role of people with knowledge to actually use that knowledge to assist the common good. Think about it. And last but not least, I'd just like to remind people that are interested that uh, Wednesday the 21st of February at uh, 6.30pm for a 7pm start at the, if you're in Melbourne, the Footscray Hotel in Melbourne, 48 Hopkins Street, I'll be doing a presentation on the Scottish martyrs and why they are relevant in 2024. Of the 162,000 convicts which were sent to Australia between 1788 and 1868, it's an 80 year period, Three and a half thousands were political prisoners, some were social protesters, some were nationalists, some were, you know, political protesters. And the first group which was sent at the end of the 18th century were the Scottish martyrs who were reformers, who were tried for sedition because they wanted to reform the corrupt political system that existed in England or Great Britain at that particular point in time. They wanted... uh, Universal suffrage, male universal suffrage, equal electorates, annual parliaments, and a decrease in the taxation burden. And they found themselves here as convicts. They had a profound impact on the country. 
And as I said before at the beginning of the program, you know, it's the fact that as we go through profound changes, when there's a revolution in how people earn their living, and that's what was occurring when that political struggle exploded in Europe at the end of the 18th century, we find ourselves in the same position. We are in the midst of a digital revolution which is changing the way we earn our living and we need to think outside the current parameters about what is important as far as political, social and community struggle is concerned. So come along tonight. It's not just a historical review. It's much more. And last but not least, if you find yourself in uh, Melbourne or you can do this yourself, doesn't matter where you are in Australia, uh, we're going to inaugurate the first James Strater Day on the 1st of March. We're having a gathering at the Eight Hour Monument in the city in Melbourne from midday to 1pm and bring food and drinks. Who was James Strater? I'll speak more about him next week. Very simple. He was a convict who on the 1st of March 1822, 202 years ago, found himself in front of the three magistrates for the heinous crime of exciting his master's servants to combine in order to oblige him to increase their wages and improve their rations or otherwise to destroy their master's property in the sheep entrusted to their care. In other words, the first effort to form unions, workplace unions, trade unions in this country. This is the beginning of the trade union movement and considering how hamstrung the trade union movement is in 2024 through legislation where legitimate workplace action has been designated as criminal activity, it's important that we remember the beginning of that struggle and we will be celebrating that struggle and uh, you can celebrate it in your part of the world hold a little vigil hold a little gathering because as I said before it's about an engaged public it's not just about remembering the past it's about using the past to understand the present and change the future and there are extraordinary in this country and in many places around the world there are extraordinary examples of people who have over and over and over again changed the course of history, not just by mass action, but by individual actions. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Listen to The Anarchist World this week, next week on the local community radio station. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. 
Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are. At home, work, driving. On public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.